Chen, if you've uh, not been to RUF before, you may be thinking, wow, those songs are, one, sounding kind of funny, and B, they've got like six verses each. Um, we do lots of different songs here, but we do do a lot of old hymns. And the reason we do that is that we think that uh, these old songs um, say a lot about God, uh, and they say a lot about us and our condition in this world. And I also uh, would suggest that some of these songs um, have a tendency to invite us in, to not just kind of escape into this me and God uh, little world that we tend to do sometimes, but to actually be thinking through um, who God is, what He has done in redemption in all of his acts, even as we sing and as we praise him. So that's kind of a short 30-second on why some of these songs uh, may look silly. Uh, but here we go. Um, I'm going to be talking uh, this semester about the story of Scripture. And I'm going to begin tonight by telling you a story. And it's a story that happened to me. You see, I, I used to live in Nashville after I graduated college, and I lived there for about two years. It's actually where I met my wife, Sarah. Sarah, wait, wave your hand. Yeah. Uh, she's the hot one back there. And uh, so I lived in Nashville for... <laughs> gross. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> lived there for two years. And uh, when I was in Nashville, after, kind of my ritual was after I would go to work, um, I joined a YMCA out there, I'd go work out, and then I'd, there was a grocery store right next to it, and so I'd go to the grocery store and get my stuff for the, uh, for the night so I could eat dinner, and then I'd go home and make dinner and all this stuff. Well, one night, um, I was, had finished working out, and it was the day that I did legs. Now, I don't know if you've taken a good view at these, but I have bird legs, okay? And so, um, for whatever reason, after I work out legs, I get sick. Like, I, it makes me want to throw up. And I don't know why. I don't know why this happens. But it does, and I'm thinking about working out because I just started working out a few days ago, and I'm really sore. Well, uh, one day, I had gone and worked out, and... As was my custom, I went to the grocery store right around the corner of the Kroger, and uh, I had gone and gotten salad over to the left, went down the aisle, got chicken, then went down the other way and got um, a boxed potatoes, you know, like au gratin or uh, something like that, so I could just make it right when I got home. So here's the deal. When I got up to the checkout register, it happened, and I got sick, really sick, as I'm taking my stuff and it's coming down the conveyor belt, the lady asked if I'd had a good day. And y'all, I must have been green in the eyes. I looked up and all I could say was, can you give me a plastic bag? <laughs> and she was there, I was here, and it happened right in front of her. And I got sick right in front of her. And it was awful and it was terrible. And um, I had to give her the bag to throw away. And so I just took my food and walked out, and it was just an awful moment. It's one of those things you look back on in life, and you think, why did that have to happen, Lord? Um, and to date, I have not received the answer. But why am I telling you that story? Because I would suggest that at the core of who we are, that we love stories. Okay? You can be sitting in class. You can be sitting in church. You can be sitting or standing wherever. And someone may sound like, wah, 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 wah. that's what it sounds like. And they say, but I'm going to tell you a story. And everybody's ears perk up. And you start paying attention. It's like, yeah, let's talk about something interesting right now. Okay? Um, and that's why I told you that story, because it was awesome, right? <laughs> I need your approval. Um, I would suggest that uh, the reason that some of you will read Harry Potter over and over again, multiple times, Jordan, and the reason that um, some of you love Twilight, the reason that some of you even love Hunger Games and all these different kind of 
multiple long episodic stories is that the core of who we are is that we can relate to a bigger story. And I'm going to suggest over this whole semester that Scripture is actually one big story. Okay, it's not just these fragmented books uh, written by these fragmented people, kind of that loosely connect, but not really. Um, I would say that Scripture is one big story from beginning to end. And as some of you literature majors, or at least we all had literature in high school or English or something, um, you know that a good story has four parts to it. Um, I talked with some people. I don't. Apparently, there's several different lists of what these parts actually are. For my purposes, so I'm going to use them uh, this semester. Uh, you have a setting. Every story has a setting, right? You have kind of the rising action, where the plot is setting, the plot's developing. And then you have the climax, or the pinnacle of the story, where it's all laid out in all of its glory. And then you have the falling action, or the denouement, as some of us French people like to say. Well, uh, Scripture has that too. There is the setting where God tells us about His creation. He creates and He tells us about it. Okay, And then there's the rising action as the plot begins to develop. The problems introduced... Uh, when sin enters the world. Okay, that happened on page 3 of my Bible that has 1,250 pages. By page 3, you've already got the problem. So for the next, I don't know, 1,247 pages, God is illustrating His act of redemption. That the climax is in the redemption when Jesus Christ comes. And the denouement is the falling action. When God talks about consummation, when everything will be made new. When everything will be remade, God says it is going to be great. And so this semester, we're going to spend about three or four weeks on each one of those, the creation story. And then we're going to talk about sin and the effects of the fall for several weeks and what that does in our lives and why we are the way we are. And then we're going to talk about redemption as God enters into the story in the person of a man in the name of Jesus. We're going to talk about that for three or four weeks. And then we're going to talk about uh, the new heavens and the new earth when all things are made new. Okay, so if that's the view from about 10,000 feet, okay, just the big picture of, story, of, of Scripture, this week we're going to go to about 5,000 feet, and I'm going to kind of introduce what I'm saying, and then in the coming weeks we're going to go down to ground level and really see what God is doing in these different acts. Okay, so if you would, um, look down at your pages right there in front of you. Um, there's just four verses for tonight. We're going to read them uh, quickly, and then we're going to uh, talk about them uh, for, for a little while. Probably just an hour or so, so don't worry about it. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, Galatians 4, uh, beginning in verse 4. Uh, this is the Word of God. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has spent the, uh, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, know, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray real quick before we look at this. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would send uh, Holy Spirit now, that he would fill our hearts and our minds. Father, that we might hear what is true, uh, and that it not just be uh, a story or a night out, um, Lord, but that it might change us. And we would ask that if it is true, that you would work that very change in our hearts. Father, we're powerless to do so, and so we ask for you to come do it right now. We pray these things through the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Okay, so as we take this 5,000-foot view um, of the story of the Bible, the story of Scripture, I want us to see three things about this story. 
The first one is this, is that it's a historical story. Okay, it's a historical story. The second thing is that it's a redemptive story. It's a redemptive story. And the third thing is that it's a family story. Okay, it's a family story. So the first thing, the story of the Bible is a historical story. What do I mean by that? What I don't mean, that's always fun when you say, what do you mean? What I don't mean is that uh, the Bible is a history book and therefore some sort of dry account of facts and details, uh, details about various events throughout history. Um, also in saying it's a historical story, I mean to say that there are plenty of things that it doesn't say about history. And if you've ever looked through the Bible, you know that. Um, because it doesn't really say anything about what was happening in North America in, say, 500 B.C., uh, it doesn't really give much attention to that. Was there even a North America before Christopher Columbus? I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, but it doesn't say stuff like that. There aren't random details flowing around because what, is it, what it's doing is it's all building around the central story about what's going on. So it gives lots of details about things that were happening in the Middle East uh, and in the ancient Near East um, surrounding Christ and about um, the prophets and all these things going on. But it, even in that, it doesn't say everything about everything that has happened for the last, I don't know, however many thousand years um, in that area, even right at the epicenter um, of the whole story of the Bible. It doesn't say everything. Okay, so what I do mean to say, by saying it's a historical story, is that every story that is true history is grounded in real space and real time. When and, we, when and where the Bible records something historical, and when and where it mentions a king or somebody who, um, you know, did this throughout, he attacked that person, or his nation invaded this person. Those things, where they can be uh, verified in other historical documents, the Bible is accurate. It is historically accurate. Okay? The authors of the various books of the Bible, they were interested in grounding their stories in history. Because they didn't want it to just be some mythical kind of fairy tale that's out there floating around. When they wrote, when God inspired these people to write the Bible, they gave us details. Now, some of them more than others, but certain ones gave us a lot of de useless details even. Okay? But that is part of what I mean when I say that the Bible is a story. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, the words tonight in Galatians, um, he wrote them to a church in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Okay? It is... It's a, it was literally a place, a church that was in this place called Galatia, okay? Um, he says in verse 4 and 5, um, right here before you, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. He's talking about Jesus. He said, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the question becomes, what does fullness of time mean? If this is a historical story, and God is interested in grounding the story of Scripture in history, what does fullness of time mean? Uh, well, it means that the time was full. <laughs> That's literally what that word means. Um, nothing else would fit into the time. Okay, think about this. Whenever I'm at church or at Christmas dinner or at Thanksgiving, there's a potluck or some kind of big spread, um, I always take my plastic plate. That's usually <laughs> at church at that point. And I'm to the point where if I put anything else on it, it's going to be bad. Right, the, the little plastic styrofoam is going to break in half. Half of it's going to go off. It's just going to be a bad deal. In fact, at Bo Berman, who's back there in the back, at his ordination service at church, there's a big meal afterward. I thought I could balance three bowls of chili or different kinds of soups on my plate. I soon found out I couldn't because uh, I, they just didn't do right. And something ended up all over my suit and my tie and I had to go get it dry clean. It was just a mess. 
You can't put anything else into it. And that's what, the Paul, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Is that God had deemed, when everything had happened that He wanted to have happen, when the time was right, the time was pregnant, He said that He sent His Son into the world. Time was ready for Jesus to come. Okay? Not only does it mean full, it means right. The time was right. In Acts, which is um, another book in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is talking uh, there to some people, and he gives an overview of how the time came to be full. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what he does is he traces the great story of Scripture. He kind of goes, he's talking to some people in a church. They ask him to speak, so he says, okay, I'll speak. He stands up and walks them through the account, like basically the Old Testament in about 15 minutes. And he just, boom, boom, boom. This happened, this happened, this king did this, this person did this which would be a little bit um, long for us to do tonight, but he doesn't. You can look in Acts chapter 13. Paul grounds his story in Scripture. Okay, and he's going back and saying these are all historical events. Okay, let's think about this. There may be some of us here tonight, there may be some of you even, who have difficulty in trusting the historicity of the Bible. Um, I, I'm not stupid. We're on a college campus where these questions are all over the place, particularly if you've been exposed... Um, had some professors who have exposed you to kind of challenging the Bible in uh, philosophical classes or religion classes or things like that. Um, they will go after the historicity of Scripture big time. Okay? You're free to believe this, and I, I'm actually glad that you're here if that's, if that's what you hold. And I hope that you keep coming, and I hope that you hear things that challenge you and that we can talk and interact about these things. I don't want you not to come because you don't believe this. Um, I want to ask you a question, though. Think about this. If... And what they usually postulate is that somebody in the first church, a group of people I mean, in the early church, kind of the first, second, third, fourth century, um, these people kind of came together and put together what became the Bible. Okay, if you were going to write a story that you wanted lots of people to believe in, and you wanted to be very uh, persuasive, and you wanted people to follow you, what would you do? What kind of people would you have leading this story? Well, you'd have recognizable names. I mean, you'd have uh, the kings of kings, wealthy people, powerful people, rich people of history. Let me tell you who the Bible records as being kind of people of interest uh, in the Scripture. Um, they kind of start out early on with this guy who worships false gods, and his name's Abraham. Um, he was, uh, then one of his relatives was a liar and a cheater named Jacob. Uh, he was followed up a little while later by a prostitute named Rahab and a murderer named David and a womanizer named Solomon who had 700 wives. How about that? Uh, not exactly the all-star list you're going to put together if you want to kind of form a credible story. Okay, and this, this is what happens after Jesus. So Jesus comes. These people are all in the lineage of Jesus. Allison will actually be talking about some of these people at her Bible study. Then Jesus comes... And he recruits this guy named Saul, who, uh, prior to Jesus meeting him, he actually killed Christians. Okay, that was kind of what he did. He killed Christians. Now, uh, you shouldn't... Uh, I, I shouldn't have to tell you that uh, that's not exactly the person you want to recruit either if you're trying to build a movement. It's someone who's, by definition, trying to stall the movement. You don't include him. But uh, why would Paul... Why would Paul be so interested in saying that his story, even in Galatians, the fullness of time, why is he so interested in grounding it in history? Because Saul, the very one who killed Christians, is actually Paul. 
It is Paul who did this. He's saying, look, I'm not trying to make this up. He said, this story is real because it's my story. He's like, these are my people. This is my lineage of sorts. Jesus came to me. I don't know why he came to me, but he did. And these are the kind of people who um, he had with him. Look, you don't have to tell me that Auburn won the national championship last night. I saw it with my own eyes. I didn't want to see it with my own eyes. I wish I had had borrowed eyes and then Oregon had won. But um, Paul saw, what he says, is that he saw a previously dead man named Jesus reappear to him. That's not normal. If you're in the early church and you want to make up a believable story, you don't say things like that. But that's what happened. And so Paul is interested in, in making this story uh, grounded in history. Scripture and the story of Scripture had become Paul's own story. And so he knows this firsthand. Okay, but there's more. The story of Scripture isn't just a story grounded in history. It's not just a historical story. It doesn't just record bare facts. At the core of the story of Scripture is a story of redemption. It's a story of making free what was once not free. Of setting free captives. Of rescuing the lost. Of taking the chains off of those who were enslaved. It's a love story even. But it's way better than romantic comedies. Way better. Um, Because it actually has a great plot to it. (laughs) And it's something that you can relate to beyond just a dream. Um, The story of Scripture is one of a faithful God pursuing His unfaithful people. In fact, the Bible talks about God's people or the church as a whore. Now, what does a whore do? She gives herself out or he gives herself out to lots of different people again and again, running after all sorts of people. And Scripture says that God is a faithful husband who goes running after that wife, saying, no, don't do that. I love you. It's better with me. Come back to me. It's a great love story. And y'all, the part of this is, and you're thinking, man, that's so sweet, except for the whore part. Um, But that's actually you and me. Is that in our hearts, the darkness that we have from sin, we actually play that role and we play it quite well. Um, It's not good. It's not something we're proud of. But it's true. It's true about us. Um, There are... uh, there's a lot, more, a lot more we could say about that. But I want to look down, and particularly in verse 5. And we're going to re, uh, read this again as we consider the story of redemption. Um, it says, to, he's going, he says, To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, Paul couldn't be more excited about what we will see later as the climax to the story of Scripture. This should come around spring break, maybe a little bit after. Paul is fired up about this idea of redemption. Okay, he's so excited about it. Why? Why is he so excited? He is excited because Jesus came to redeem a people for himself. How did Jesus do that? He came to free us. He didn't even, um, some of us even didn't even know that we were lost and that we needed to be found. Some of us are here tonight and don't think that we're lost and we need to be found. That's fine. That's fine. Look, the whole story of Scripture is saying, look, this is what God is saying about you, is that you are and you need to be found. Okay, why is Jesus so excited, or why is Paul so excited? Um, he's so excited because he said this man named Jesus, or God's son, was born of a woman and born under the law. That sounds exciting, right? Uh, that just is awesome. We don't know what that means. So here's what that means. Um, Paul is excited Jesus was born from a woman and was one of us. This is why. 
Jesus could be our representative. He could be our representative to God. Think about this for a minute. Um, The way that God uh, explains his story in Scripture is in the beginning, after creation, um, he puts Adam and Eve there. Uh, And they are the first man and woman. And God uses Adam and Eve as our representative, as the representative of all of humankind. They acted on behalf of us. Okay, let's just, we, we get this more than we think we do. Think about this. President Obama can't be everywhere at once. No president can. CEOs can't either. Um, people who are really popular and really in high demand, they can't do that. So what does he do? He sends an official representative. He sends an ambassador to various meetings around the world. And they come with the weight and the force of the president. They come with the seal or with the pen or whatever it may be. They're acting on behalf of the president. They represent the president. And this is the way that God works, is that he works through representatives. Adam and Eve were our first representative. And what do we know about that story, if you know the story of Scripture at all, is that they blew it. Right? When they went into the meeting on behalf of all of us, when they were in the garden uh, meeting with God, they did not represent us well. They sinned. They did the one thing God said don't do. Um, that would have been, well, I like to, we all kind of like to blame Adam and Eve. You're like, you're so stupid. Why would you do that? Um, but really, we would have done the same thing. Because at our core, we don't want to be second in charge. We want to be first in charge. We want to be the present. We want to be God. And so we don't like this idea of someone else um, ruling over us. But nonetheless, this is how God works. He works using representatives. And so Paul is excited that the Son of God was born of a woman, was a real person, you could touch him, because he was our representative. And where Adam and Eve blew it, this second person didn't. Jesus did not blow it for us. He actually came and acted perfectly on our behalf as our representative. He went into the meeting of life and was under God's law, did all that God said to do, and he succeeded as our representative. And we'll see what that means in just a minute. Hebrews 4.15 um, tells us this. The, um, before we read it, I'm going to tell you, the theological word for representative is a word the Bible calls a priest. Now, some of you may have grown up in churches where there actually was a priest. And what does a priest do? He represents the people before God. And so the priest would go up to the altar. He would offer prayers on behalf of the people. Um, and so that sense, Adam was the first priest, but Jesus comes as a greater priest. Okay, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this about Jesus. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet he was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need. He's saying this, that Jesus is not just some ethereal priest, somebody we can't relate to, but he was actually one of us. He was born under a woman, of a woman. Okay, He was a real person. And so he was a real priest for us. Just like Adam was a real person, so was Jesus. Um, and Paul's excited because Jesus uh, did it. He did what was right. Okay, that's the first thing Paul's excited about. The second thing is that he was born under the law. He was born under the law. What does that mean? It means that the God who created us and who created the whole world um, has given us rules for living. He said, look, if you're going to live in my world, and I'm a holy God, and I know what's best for you, here is how you should live. Here are things you should live by. And these things include things like the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's a a representative list 
of God's law. Um, but here's what, the, here, here's what that means, is that God comes... I'm getting waved over. Okay. I didn't even tell you all about this. If you have questions about something, you can text me. Afterward, I'm going talk to talk about these questions. But anyway, I was getting the uh, do this thing. So um, Jesus was born under the law. Um, here's why that matters. is because uh, whereas we, as people living in God's world, don't like the law. And we hate, we hate God's law. We rebel against it all the time, whether or not you even know it. You don't keep God's law. Paul is excited because Jesus did. He was our representative, our priest, but he was also a keeper of the law. And he was perfect where we fail. Okay, there's a a pastor named John Calvin from the 16th century who says this. He says, Christ, the Son of God, who might have claimed to be exempt from every kind of subjection, being God himself, he could have taken the pass. He didn't have to do this. Um, He might have claimed to be free, Says he became subject to the law. Why? He did so in our place, that he might obtain freedom for us. A man who is free by making himself a slave redeems one who is already a slave. By putting on himself the chains, he takes them off from the other. So Christ chose to become liable to keep the law, that exemption from it might be obtained for us. Christ was made under the law for us, so that he might keep the law on our behalf. And Paul is excited about this because it means, friends, that God no longer expects us to keep the law in order to make a right relationship with him. He no longer requires that of us because it's already been done. Jesus has already done that. God sent his son to do that for us. Okay, if you only come tonight to RUF, and if you, if you never come through the doors of Sharp Chapel again on Tuesday night, I want you to know one thing. Jesus did not come to make you a better person. He did not come to make you more moral. He didn't come to make you somebody who people would like more. That was not his primary goal in coming. That is not why God sent him. To be a follower of Christ does not mean you have your life more together than those around you. See, what it means is that you can be free. And it means that God is no longer mad at you for breaking His law. Because He was mad at His own Son for you. Because, friends, we deserve punishment for breaking the laws of God. But what Paul is so excited about is that there is one who has come. God has sent Himself. He sent His Son to take the punishment for us. Why? Because God loves His people. At the story, I told you it's a love story. It is a love story of a faithful God loving and pursuing His people. And Paul is so excited about this. Friends, the story of the Bible is a story of freedom. It's a story of redemption. And finally tonight, I want to suggest that the story of Scripture is not just history or redemption, but it's also a family story. It's also a family story. And as such, it has the power to change the very nature of who you are. Let's look back down and read 5 through 7 again. God sent His Son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
Friends, what Paul is saying is that Jesus came to redeem those under the law. Why? So that we might be adopted as sons. So that we might be brought in to God's family. It is popular, the notion of we're all children of God. And that's kind of right in the sense that we are all created by God and we owe our very being to Him. But friends, there's a family love here that goes much, much, much deeper than just being a generic child of God. Paul is saying we can be as His Son. As much as He loved Jesus, His only Son, Paul is saying we can be loved just like that. Whereas through Adam's act, we earn disapproval with God. Through Jesus' act, we earn adoption as sons. It could be no better. It couldn't be better. And notice that Paul doesn't say that we earn our adoption. What does he say? We receive it. So we receive our adoption as sons. And friends, this is at the heart of this great story. Is that God is the one who pursues us. He doesn't make us get our lives in order and stop doing this or stop doing that or stop singing this way or stop singing that way before we come to Him. He says, look, look at what Jesus has done for you. God sent His own Son to die because that's what our rule breaking from God, that's what it deserves, but He sent Himself to die for us. He's saying, look, believe that and receive your adoption. You can't earn an adoption. If you're, if you're a child at the adoption agency, you can do no more to be adopted um, than the stars in the sky can say, I want to be out of the sky. There's no power in being one who needs to be adopted. But there is great power in the one who comes to adopt. And our call is to receive that. Is to receive adoptions. He has sent His Son to be enslaved to the, to the law so that you and I might be free, not just to, free to walk around, but free to be in His family, to be a son. And if you look down in verse 7, you're not a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I don't know if you've ever known someone who's been an heir <coughs> to a fortune. But friends, their lives are never the same. And what God is telling us is that His own Son, who owns everything, He's the King over creation, is Jesus. Paul is saying that if you believe this, if you receive your adoption, that's yours too. That one day we will reign with Jesus. It's the denouement. It's the falling action. It's the thing that happens at the end. But it's not a boring ending. The story of Scripture is a glorious ending. And it is one that if it's your story, it will end well. There is no sad ending in this story. Because God is a faithful God who loves and pursues His people. And we're going to see that over this whole semester, how this plays out, and I hope that you would come back and hear about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that, um, that this would be good news to us. That Your story uh, would make sense of our lives, would make sense of the world that we live in. Father, not just... Um, so that it would be cool, but so that it might change us. Would you come do that now? Be with us as we go through the rest of this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the uh, musicians come up, the next song we're going to sing is um, Heart from the... Uh,
a verse I just read. It's Hebrews 4, 4 through 15. And what it's saying is that if, you are, if Jesus is your Savior, if you have received that adoption, that you don't have to fear God anymore. That you can come boldly into His presence because of what Jesus has done. So let's stand and sing that right now.